Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 243, and with that number, we're going to give a shout out to Megan Rapino, who in the first six seasons of NWSL recorded 243 shots. Only five players have recorded more. Megan Rapino, obviously one of the 23 on the U.S. Women's National Team for France this summer. And of course, that's the main topic of discussion for this week's episode. Two chats. First, I spoke with Jen Hildreth, who was the play-by-play announcer for the Game of the Week for NWSL for the previous two seasons. She was also an announcer for the 2015 Women's World Cup and also back in the WPS days and even WSA days. So, She's seen a lot of these players, and what Jen and I mostly talked about was from the perspective of having seen these players week in, week out over the last two seasons of NWSL, what she thought about the U.S. roster. Surprises, um, expectations, a little bit of everything. And then I spoke with Charles Bohm, who's a freelance soccer writer, mostly for Soccer Wire, but here and there are many different things. We kept up the the U.S. Women's National Team conversation, but from a broader angle of over the last cycle, how the team has developed, how the team has not developed, what what benefit the team gets from NWSL and, and vice versa. So two chats. Hope you enjoy them both. Jen Cooper, the keeper, with my long-lost broadcasting friend. That would be Jen Hildreth, who... Jen, where have you been since we since the Lifetime deal got cut off with NWSL? We know you're out there somewhere on the airwaves calling soccer. <laughs> I, you know, I haven't been calling soccer. I'm so sad. Yeah, I, I did... College Cup, the NCAA Women's College Cup back in December, and that was my last one. So it has been a while, and I definitely miss it. But filling in a little bit of NCAA basketball and softball and um, even have an MLS game coming up. But I, I miss you. I miss NWSL a lot, for sure. Well, talk about the MLS game real quick. Uh, that will be your first to do play-by-play for MLS, right? It will. Yes. I'm getting an opportunity. Actually, I'll be in an all-female crew, and Fox did this for the first time last year, where Lisa Byington, Danielle Slayton, and Katie Witham did a phenomenal job, and I'm pretty sure that was the first time it was an all-female broadcast, right? And they did great. So we are doing that again this year. It'll be on Mother's Day. It's going to be myself and Kat Whitehill and Jillian Stakovitz. And I'm hoping I'm saying Jillian's last name right. You know how I am about pronunciations, and it's one of those things where I keep going into my head. I'll have make sure I have that right. Um, but I'm sure MLS fans are familiar with her. But yeah, well, it'll be Sunday. We're going to do DC United at Audi Field against Sporting Kansas City. So we are looking forward to it. It's a big day of soccer on Fox. They've got, I think, four games across the Fox networks that day between U.S. national team and MLS. So we are looking forward to being a part of it. And you got to do a game at Audi Field last summer, right? With Washington yes. Spirit. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah, I got to see that venue. So it, that was kind of nice. Get a chance to go back to a place I'm somewhat familiar with. At least I've had one game there. What's your impression of that that stadium? I haven't been there yet. You know, um, I, from what I remember, I, I liked it. You just you get you get a good feel for the fans being close and you hear them and the, the atmosphere is good. Um, but to be honest, I I've got to go back and see it. There's, there's not anything specific that stands out to me now, other than the field itself was beautiful. It was all done right. You know, you had great viewing lines for everybody and all that kind of thing. Um, the booth is very nice and big. So I appreciate that <laughs> on my notes. <laughs> but yeah, they, they do a good job and I'm excited to get there and, and see it with the DC United crowd, especially because, you know, that team is once again contending in the top of the East. So I think it's going to be a fun one. So you've got the women's world cup coming up this summer as well. You're going to call games for Fox. Uh, So I wanted to talk to you about your thoughts on the U S women's national team roster, because like Allie Wagner, you spent the last two years calling NWSL week in, week out. This is the first time 
we have a U.S. Women's World Cup roster where every single player is an active member of a U.S. Women's Pro League. Um, yeah. So, so great. you know, yeah. So you know, you know all these players. So when you heard the roster come out, you know what? What were your first thoughts? Who were the players that you thought, oh, I'm so excited she's on the roster? Well, for I think definitely Jess McDonald, seeing her on the roster and just knowing her journey and all the different stops she has made along the way. She was a late in her career to get an opportunity with the national team and now to be there. And it is so well deserved having watched her in NWSL. And whereas she's a player who, you know, was always one of those twin towers, as Paul Riley loves to call them in his system with the North Carolina Courage with her and Lynn Williams, but two players <laughs> with totally different games. And you cannot label Jess McDonald as a one-dimensional type of player anymore. I think maybe early in her career, you know, she relied on her size and her speed. But mm-hmm. if you watch the way that she her footwork, she gets herself in good positions and, and the way she sets her teammates up, you know, she certainly picked up her assist number, uh, led the league, I believe last year, at least at one point, I think she did an assist. So I, I just, I was so happy to see her on there. I love seeing Adriana French as well, who I think is an ultra talented goalkeeper, so much potential there and just needs to get an opportunity to get comfortable and to get some reps. I think that position in general, we need to see more people or we needed to, at this point, you're not throwing a lot more people (laughs) out there to get experience, but I think we need to keep developing that position. Um, And so I I was happy to see her in there as well. Um, Those are probably my two biggest takeaways where I did a big fist pump because I was excited to see those names on there. And I'm just going to go right on in because I know what the next question is, Miss Jen. And that'll be the ones that I was shocked not to see on there. Of and course. Surprise. <laughs> I don't think it'll surprise anybody. I tweeted about this right away. I wanted to see McCall Zerboni on this roster. I think her injury was really unfortunate when she had to miss that right after getting called into the national team and getting an opportunity then she was hurt and was out for a while and did get a chance to come back but you know I just think she is the engine for the North Carolina Courage which is the best team in my opinion in women's pro soccer history in the U.S. and she has come on in her opportunities and I think done well and to be honest the midfield is an area along with the fence but there are some questions there, once, you, especially once you get beyond your starting 11. And yes. the good news is we're, we're nitpicking, right? Like we're right. nitpicking this roster. Because we're nitpicking about one of the roster. deepest teams in the world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And look, I still looked at it and had to go, all right, these guys, these look, this is a great team. I love this team. I love all the talent on this team. It's going to be tough for anybody to beat this team. They're going to compete with anybody in the World Cup. That doesn't mean anything's a given, but it means I feel pretty good about my chances with this group. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think that was, I think the Morgan Bryan edition really was one that had me scratching my head just because I know the type of player Morgan Bryan can be. But in my time in NWSL, I've never been able to see it because he's never been able to stay healthy. And of course, she played abroad some as well. That's a problem. And she has not been healthy. I mean, she can't stay healthy. And if you can't stay healthy, you are not reliable, no matter what your talent potential is. So I think if you're looking at someone to bring in and you've got someone who's your day-to-day leader in the midfield that may not have World Cup experience, but has a ton of experience in the professional game and some big-time atmospheres and semifinals and championships in a McCall Zerboni that's that, that I think is the one I really would like to have seen gone a different way. And that's no offense to Morgan Bryan. As I said, she, she is a player who has so much talent. I just, we haven't been able to see it consistently. Well, and I think about that moment on the Fox broadcast uh, during, she believes, you know, where you see Zerboni with the huddle. <laughs> the, going, the huddle? You know, we're, yeah. We're effing winners. You know, it's, it's like <laughs> oh, to, ha- to have that. someone who has, Fewer than 10 caps, who has never been a regular on the national team, mm-hmm. who you know is is probably not going to see time in the She Believes tournament, but is still the leader off the bench. That That's huge. You know, especially Absolutely. when you think about you take 23 players, 
not all of them are going to see the field. So th- those those backup players, if they have other roles to fill like that, that's huge. Yeah. That's no, so I, huge. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And, you know, I, I so remember that moment and I just <laughs> loved it. And I, I mean, anybody who has watched NWSL is like, oh, yeah, there's McCall. You know, we're all used to that. But to your point, to be able to be that leader when you are not in a primary starting role on a team, that takes something special. Just to have that confidence to be that person and to know you can be that person and you can still affect the team. And to be honest, who are the other personalities that are like that on this team? On the bench, especially. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure who jumps out that is that natural, fiery leader. And I love that. You don't pick somebody just for that reason. But when you're talking, if you're close and you're going between two players, that certainly is one of those intangibles that, in my mind, yes, would be a big plus. Well, and I liked your comment about goalkeepers, and obviously it's you know it's not time to 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 try out more goalkeepers, but it did make me think about this past weekend in an NWSL get this only two goals in four games, so it was definitely a weekend wow. for keepers. Yeah, uh, you know, and North Carolina and crossbars, Sky- I believe. Yeah, yes, and North Carolina Sky <laughs> Blue was like the the tryout for who's going to start for Canada this summer. Apparently it was just this intense LeBay <laughs> versus Sheridan thing, but I'm right. all, you know, it's just like, wow, that, you know, there's, we do have this deep keeper pool. Thanks to NWSL. And I feel like it, it hasn't seeped into the national team as much as it should have beyond the argument of, Hey, Harris needs more reps. French needs more reps. Like there's this whole other whole other pool that's just, you know, not even getting a call into camp. So hopefully that's something yeah. post World Cup that we can see, you know, that that changes. But but back to the World Cup roster, what did you think about how many forwards there were on on the <laughs> roster? I don't know if we've <laughs> ever taken that many. That's a, I'm looking at it right now. That didn't jump out initially, but uh, now that you say it, it is interesting. Although, I mean, I look at someone like a Mallory Pugh and even, even Rapino. I mean, some of these players and the way Jill Ellis uses them, they can certainly drop. Right. Even they right. can drop into more, you know, a wide midfield position. So they are versatile enough to be there, but you got your six midfielders. So that's 13 right there. I mean, it's a good, strong number, but. I would put our attacking group of players up against anybody and say, bring it. You know, I, it's, it's the defense, of course, that I think is the biggest concern for most people, as it should be, going into the World Cup based on recent results and what the U.S. has done. But that attacking group, I think, is awesome. Uh, just looking it's at the amazing. list, of them, I, I mean, the combination, the different types of players that you have in there, too, when you have – you know, a Tobin Heath and then Alex Morgan has really turned into a consistent finisher for this team, which is great. Mallory Pugh, you know, Rapino and everything she brings. And then even Kristen Press. I mean, it's so hard to keep Kristen Press on the bench when she comes in and has such a great impact. So I think it is it's a really deep pool, and I love it. I, I love seeing them all there. I wish Jill Ellis luck in figuring out the right combinations with all of them. <laughs> well, and one thing that... I really had to remind myself when I looked at this roster is how many of these people it's their first world cup because just within a few years, they become so entrenched that you kind of have to kick yourself and go, this is Lindsay Horan's first world cup. This is Mallory Hughes first world cup. This is Crystal Dunn's first world cup. You know, (laughs) Yeah, that that is true. You're right, because especially they have been such fixtures, especially Lindsay Horan and Crystal Dunn since she's come back into the league. You you forget about the fact that this is a first for them. You don't forget maybe for Crystal, because you remember how she was one of yes. the last ones that didn't get to make it the last time. And I yes. love her story, too. And it, see, I didn't even include her on my like fist pumping list because she has just been such a given for as well right. as played, how versatile she is. But, yeah, you have to you have to be so excited for someone like her in particular who didn't make that team in 2015 and made herself into a player that 
could not be left off in 2019. And I think that's fantastic. Well, and, and speaking of defenders, though, though, I hate to, you know, trap Crystal Dunn in a corner by calling her defender. <laughs> a lot of the defenders, a lot of our, our, our defense, they are first timers. Um, you know, Davidson, Dahl Kemper, Sonnet, uh, you, you know, it's, they, they've earned a lot of caps over the last few years, but it's a different kind of group than, you know, going into 2015, you had a lot of veteran def- defenders. Of course, Julie Johnston had to step up and basically replace Christy Rampone. Right. But I, I, I look at this group and, and, and they don't seem like newbies to me because of how much <laughs> we've seen them in NWSL. I think, of course, the question for most people is, wait, who's going to play where and why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I'm still not sold on Emily Sonnet as an outside back. I, I just am not used to seeing her there. I, right. She brings a lot into the, and, and here's one of my biggest concerns with our defending group, that there are a lot of players who are going to give you great service, great attack. They're going to be, big and helping us get numbers forward and using our outside backs to get up in there. Okay. But on the actual defending side and experience as defenders, that's where I'm a bit concerned because you're pushing Sonnet has been pushed outside where I, she's had most of her career inside with NWSL. Um, and then Crystal Dunn, I've obviously, I, I, I love Crystal Dunn. I mean, I think she's great as an outside back and her, defensive recovery is great. So even if she is still somewhat learning the position, mm-hmm. she has enough athleticism and recovery to make up for any little mistakes she might make. And she's gotten so much better and has gotten a lot of experience. I think, I do think the Allie Krieger selection was surprising. Um, I do see what she wants with experience. And that was a big theme. I know you were probably on that call with Jill Ellis too last mm-hmm. week, Jen. She talked about wanting experience, players who have been there. No moment will be too big. And that is true um, for somebody like an Allie Krieger. But at the same time, as much as I really enjoy the leadership of a veteran like Allie Krieger, I've also seen a lot of moments where she gets herself in a bad spot and can't necessarily recover in time to get back. And so if I'm looking at that versus a Casey Short, someone who has been in a little bit more, well, a lot more recently mm-hmm. with the national team, I, I think myself, I probably would have leaned toward going with someone like a Casey Short. But then again, I, I am very happy for Allie Krieger to see her get another opportunity. I just think the timing of everything is a little surprising and that she hadn't really been in much and playing at all for two years. And all of a sudden here she is. So surprising but happy for her to be there both of those things well and like you said before we're nitpicking when you look how strong this roster is overall and you know there's a good chance a lot of these players don't see any time right right you know so we have to point out that yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you know it's it's great to be able to take 23 i mean this is only the second World Cup, Women's World Cup, where rosters have been 23, which has been the size of the men's for a long time. And, you know, 20, yeah, 23 comes from, so you can play 11 v 11 and you have a third keeper. That's, you know, that's that's where it's from. It's, you're not going to see all the players, you know. Um, And of course, you know, I I should throw in that the final rosters are submitted to FIFA. I think it's May 24th. And after that, you can still change a player if there's a certified injury, you know, which, of course, you don't want to happen, but has happened before, like 2011. Lindsay Tarpley, uh, you know, got hurt before the tournament. That's when Kelly O'Hara was, you know, named as replacement. But right now, that's that's the 23. That's who we're going to see in in the three send-off series. So we are... It's crazy to think, oh, my God, tomorrow, May 7th, is a month before the Women's World Cup starts. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> also nervous sweats at all the work I still have to do. I know. I, yeah, I know. I kind of went, oh, my God, I, <laughs> I still have some work to do. Um, so in your preparations, 
you know, what kind of things are you working on this far out? Because one of the things that's been fascinating for me getting more involved in in broadcast these last couple of years is seeing the volume of preparation, the, the details in preparation that, you know, your viewers never going to see and you don't need them to see it. You just, but if you don't do it on (laughs) your end, then you look like a doofus on the broadcast. So talk about some of the things that, that, that you do to prepare for calling these games, because I mean, you were asking me, Oh, it was two months ago. Like, hey, I need to watch these New Zealand games. How do I watch <laughs> these New Zealand games? So it's, you know, in advance for a tournament like this, which games you're calling. Yes. Yes. I at least know the group. I know my group schedule. And I was yeah. just counting. I should know this offhand, but I think, um, I think in my one, two, three, I have eight group games and I think I have 12 different teams. So um, that can just be overwhelming to even think about <laughs> looking at. Yeah, but I had to start doing something because if I wait until they all release their rosters, then it is this massive overnight right. session that would last the entire month. Um, right. So basically, I mean, to help me out, I start making my team pages. And I know you know what those look like, but right. my team pages just give me the basic information as much as I can gather. And uh, you are a part of our great research group at Fox that has a lot of information up on our research site already, but also just kind of going online and seeing what I can find. So I want to make sure I know World Cup history. How many times have they been there? What's the best they've ever done? Make sure I have their group schedule laid out and I'm starting to get a really good feel of who's in which group and which are going to be the big games. What have they done in preparation, if anything? Have they had camps? What are their matches? What are the results been? What was their qualification like? So I have a whole section where I write down, you know, I'm looking at Chile's right now. So I'm looking, you know, at the Copa America Femenina. That is where they qualified. And so what was their yeah. record? What, Who stood out? Just any little details. And it's, I can't build a lot into my boards yet, but I'm starting them. So I've started the boards with a couple players who I know – are going to be home runs for each of the teams names you continue to hear over and over. And as I, we get weekly updates from our research group every week and I have gone through all of those and I have broken them out into my team by team through my 12 teams. I've taken every note that's been sent out by research and put them into my team files. So I have it all there. So when I start to look at Chile, I have it all in one spot and I can see all the different announcements that there have been, roster announcements for friendlies and any other news or player features or things like that. So, yeah, so it's all about organization, really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Trying to. I have another I have another um, document that just is basic World Cup facts on every team that's in the World Cup. And it's a two pager and it just has listed by group every team with their coach, number of World Cup appearances, best finish. um, And I think I think that's it. I'll put them for those just so I have that basic stuff in front of me um, for especially a lot of these teams to, you know, the U.S. is one thing. But when you're talking about Cameroon or Thailand or even a China or a Spain and Netherlands. I need to have all of that information somewhat in my brain as well, even though I could not pull it all out for you right now, but just to know that I'm starting <laughs> to build the files makes me feel better and not have those panic attacks. Now, has it seemed different at all uh, from preparing for 2015? Has it seemed like there's more, coverage or easier to find video or or have you noticed any differences between your preparation for this tournament and last time around? I I wouldn't say so, although I I do think there is more access to video, especially when you have good friends who help you find out how to do things Uh, from other countries. I I do think there's more of that out there and that, that is helpful to at least get your eyes on some of these players and start to see what they look like a little bit. But for the most part, no, I feel like it's similar, although I am different because I have just been entrenched, thankfully, in the women's soccer world since 2015. And so just being a part of that, it's coming a lot more naturally to me now. And I've done it so often for NWSL games and college games. I know what I need to have to prepare. It's a lot, but at least I know what it is. So whereas 2015, it was, I didn't really even know all the stuff I needed to know. Um, But in terms of information gathering, it's been, I'd say about the same. 
Yeah, that that horrible broadcast feeling where you just realize that all the preparations you did are not enough. (laughs) (laughs) That that was my experience for my one game on ESPN3. I was was like, I thought I did enough. I did not. But thankfully, the soccer gods saved me and the TV truck caught on fire. So we were only on air for 20 minutes. God. <laughs> so that's a good silver lining there, Jen. Fire. Oh my God. I, I know when the producer said, um, we can't go on air yet because we've had a little fire. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So I know. Yeah. But it's it's crazy because you think you know a lot and you just have to keep going over it and over it and find every little piece because it's not like everything you research you're going to say during the game, but you want all those pieces ready. So depending on what happens in the game, that information is ready. And that, that was a big thing. I think for me to understand the first year doing the lifetime broadcast that, a lot of this stuff might not get used, but you never know, depending on how the game unfolds, what's going to be most relevant. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and even all this preparation, once the tournament starts in something like a World Cup, your stories really kind of become the tournament and what's yes. there. So you do all this stuff to prepare because you have to and you need to have that background knowledge to know and weave in and just have it as a base and a foundation. But right. then really so much of it, it's like this ongoing beast that you just need to keep up with as it grows. And that is one of the hardest things for me. I love having everything set and ready, but nothing is set and ready. It's all fluid and moving and adjusting. And you have to know what's going on with all of these different teams and all of these different groups as they happen, because the notes that you may have had coming in to the world cup, may not matter once you get past the group stage and into the knockout rounds. It's much more so, what do they do in the three group games? And what are the storylines now? Right. So you just have to be ready to, ready to roll with it. Yeah, that round of 16 match, you don't need to be saying, oh, yeah, and Norway didn't bring Ada Hegerberg. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like old yeah. news. <laughs> Am I the only one, by the way, that just kind of keeps sort of hoping that maybe she'll change your mind maybe it's not too late i'm sure there's there's plenty of people that are hoping that but yes that's not going to happen but at least she's young you know that that norway's got plenty of time to to get their act together so you know she can swoop in in 2023 and and make things happen well yeah they can do her guns too you know feeling things weren't right and standing her ground and missing out on probably something she's dreamed of her entire life so definitely yeah. definitely well i'm so excited that you that you're going to be calling games this summer and even though we're not working directly together i like knowing that you know you are reading uh the research and the game notes <laughs> that, I, that i'll that i'll be working on and you know and 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 if we're lucky maybe we'll get you back on an nwsl game someday I sure hope so. I've been, as you know, I've been a part of that league in some form or fashion since the beginning, with the exception of maybe I think the first year. So, I, uh, I sure and you called WSA Catholic. and you called WPS. So I know, you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to hang around. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck calling the World Cup this summer. And I will definitely be talking to you after the tournament to get all your thoughts. Yeah, sounds good. Great to talk with you, Jen. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Charles Bohm, freelance soccer writer, soccer writer extraordinaire. Well, sometimes, most of the time, you're pretty good, Charlie. But uh, let's talk U.S. soccer. <laughs> I got to take what I can get. <laughs> um, wanted to get your perspective. Of course, I talked to Jen Hildreth in the first segment about her thoughts on the U.S. women's national team roster because she was play-by-play week in, week out for NWSL the last two seasons. So I wanted to get the perspective less from NWSL and more the overview of how we've seen this team and this player pool evolve 
since the last Women's World Cup. I mean, you really have to say this is the first time where we've had a league that has spanned two cycles, two development cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it's a whole new world that that we're in, and I, and I think we've seen some good stuff from that. Uh, you know, Jessica McDonald obviously would not be one of the 23 without <laughs> NWSL. But um, I, I still I still feel that it's not fully being used. Um, you know, having nine, nine teams with now 20 to 26 players, um, I, I don't think the full breadth of the, the league is being used. Yeah, I have to say, um, uh, it's not altogether clear to me when I look at this roster how Jill Ellis uses NWSL play, performance, achievements um, in her roster selection. And, and and I want to start by saying, you know, anything, any criticism um, that, that comes out of my mouth in the next few minutes about Jill Ellis's is pro- policies and her, her approaches, um, it, it's she obviously has a lot of leeway and she has built a lot of benefit of the doubt by winning the world cup. Um, however, you know, rosters inevitably in most cases are come down to what one or two people think of certain players and they have to make some A or B decisions. They have to, they have to calculate and try and, and, and factor in multiple variables. And I recognize it's not an easy process. It is just as much art as science. Um, and they know things that coaching staff knows things and has, has perspectives that we can only guess at or dream of really. So uh, I recognize it's not easy and that there's lots of data that we on the outside don't have. That being said, um, does NWSL form and performance really matter uh, in these selections that she made for her final World Cup roster? I, I'm not sure that, that they do. At least it's not obvious because, yeah, you know, the McDonald case is a, is a great example of NWSL working and, and uh, p- providing a great platform for a player to, to, to sneak in and grab one of the, the last spots, I think quite deservingly. Um, and yet I thought that, that a similar story was going to unfold with McCall Zerboni in midfield performing similar role by virtue of a similar set of sustained accomplishment, really dominance in NWSL. Right. That we're told is the, pro- the proving ground for the national team players. Uh, and, and she didn't make the cut. And there's a couple others that you can say something similar about. And I think uh, one, one of the things I want to add is the trouble with the NWSL season schedule is with the world cup coming up just a month away and the season is only four weeks old, obviously 2019 NWSL form has little impact on the roster decision. So when you think of the, the I don't know about that, Jen, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, because, and the reason I say that is that, um, to me, the most shocking and, um, to some extent, confusing selection was Morgan Bryan. Uh, and I, I, I can only conclude she, she's played really just a fraction of the club minutes um, that have been available to her across uh, the last several seasons, not only in NWSL with Houston uh, and Chicago, but also in her brief um, and I think for her frustrating, difficult stint uh, in France. She's, she's been she's struggled to stay fit. When she's been fit, she's struggled to find her best form. And yet the through I think three appearances maybe it was before the the roster decision yeah, three and one of them a start seems to have been enough to have convinced Joe Ellis that that this player who uh, I am a huge advocate of who I think transformed uh, this team four years ago and and paved the path to to the World Cup victory uh, I'm just baffled that that the coaching staff has seen enough to know that she's going to hold up physically and that she can summon her best and it has to have been based on um, well uh, you know certainly what they saw with, with the national team last year and uh, I think about a dozen uh, appearances for the for the national team but also three or four NWSL games I I would argue it has very little to do with the NWSL games other than it was a reassurance to Jill that, that she's finding her fitness um, because it seems like uh, the, the last few spots were taken by players that she has seen them 
you know, in intense games. She's seen Allie Long in the 2016 Olympics. She's seen Morgan Bryan in 2015 and 2016. And I think this, the same thing for Krieger. She she's a known. She's not an unknown. And there are a lot of new players on this team. It, it's kind of weird to think that it's the first senior World Cup for a player like Samantha Mewis, Lindsay Horan, even Crystal Dunn. But but it is. Um, it's they're not going to be at home. You know, um, playing in Canada was basically the next best thing to playing at home because it's it's so close that you know all the U.S. games were had so many U.S. fans. And I, and I really felt sorry for the city of Vancouver uh, the last day at the final. <laughs> the place was overrun. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't, I, I think it, it's got to be weird where you're going into your last six months of preparation and all your players are not playing in the league. So, of course, that does give you the freedom of having camps, but but then you lose the week in week out. Like I was even thinking with the goalkeepers, um, think of it that French Harris and Nair are now in camp and there's only three games before the world cup. And maybe we'll see Harris get half a cap, but I bet the bulk will be Nair where Jane Campbell, who we can guess is their number four um, will be week in week out up and, you know, even through the world cup will be playing, um, high intensity game. So say she gets called upon, you know, say someone gets injured, she's actually in better shape than the keepers who have been with camp in camp for six weeks. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, I think the, there's a lot of questions we can ask about, um, you know, there's the relationship between the Federation and the league. There's this blank check that Jill Ellis has been given. And I've, I've had multiple conversations over the years off the record with people in around the Federation, in around the league that make clear that uh, as much backing and support as the Federation has provided for the league, um, you know, there's no, there's no doubt that, that, that Daniel Galati and, and the SSF were instrumental in the creation and maintenance and survival uh, of, of NWSL. But it's it's always going to run a distant second at best to whatever the priorities are for Jill Ellis and her coaching staff or whoever the national team coach is at that moment. To some extent, that's understandable. The women's national team are the world champions. They're a cash cow. But I think the balance between club and country is off right now. And I'm, I'm my, my fear is that the worst case scenario is that it, it ends up being one of many factors that undermine their, their title defense this summer. Because I, I feel like the best teams are the ones that are constantly changing. And I don't mean overhaul changes, but I mean like constant tweaks and, and giving uh, other players a shot and bringing somebody in, getting them a cap. Maybe they don't work out. You know, we, we've seen spurts of that from, from Jill. Um, but we've also seen players come into camp and, and I'm thinking of like Chioma Ubogagu who fall 2017, she, she gets called in at the end of the season. She has a good season. She's in camp with them. They play two games against Canada. She's not in the 18 either game. It's like, she can't be that horrible that she can't make the 18. <laughs> you know, it's like, give her a run, give her at least 20 minutes and see, you know, in a game situation, because obviously that's, that's the best indication instead of, um, you know, we know what Carly Lloyd can do. If you bring her in the last 10 minutes, 10 minutes of a game, we don't know what a can do or Colaprico or McDonald or something like that. And, and I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of players that we think are really great in the league. They get called in, they might not perform on that next level, but I still feel like there's not an, enough opportunity uh, for for some of those fringe players to to get that chance, similar to I, I think back a few coaches back, I think I think Pia might have done it, and and Heinrichs definitely did it. Where early in the year, when they'd have a January trip, say to like China or something like that, she would leave a few veterans at home so that they didn't have the added wear and tear of travel, you know, games they didn't need to play. She didn't leave everybody at home, but opening up a couple of spots so that you're slowly working people in. And I feel like we've done that very sporadically. And when you look at the number of games that our national team plays compared to 
other national teams, it's, it's kind of crazy that our pool isn't bigger. And when I say pool, I mean like pool of people that actually get to play, not, well, you've got called into a camp. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think this is the most difficult task that any national team coach, especially a successful one, um, has. There's always the desire to stick with familiarity, to reward success, to recognize the, the players who've, who've won trophies, who've contributed and performed at a high level consistently versus the, the desire for new blood. This, you've got to refresh your squad. You've got to um, create unity without complacency, right? And competition without um, sort of cutthroatness and questionable chemistry. Um, you know, you have to find that balance and it's very difficult. And, and in the last 10, 25 years, um, and both the men's and women's games are littered with examples of coaches not getting it right, um, of world champions not refreshing enough, um, getting long in the tooth, um, getting stagnant, both in terms of their personnel and their ideas. And Germany's men's team in the last World Cup uh, last summer was exhibit A of that, you know, a team that had won so much, had it done so much, had so so much stability, um, but ultimately uh, were, were out, outrun and outgun, outran and outgunned by 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 younger, more dynamic teams with new ideas, with different ways uh, of playing. And so uh, I think that's, that's if I were in, in, in any form or fashion connected with the women's national team program, those are the kind of alarm bells that would be going off when I looked at the age of my squad, uh, the number of holdovers, the relative limit, you know, limited nature of the change from, from four years ago to now. You know, Ellis has had four years uh, to experiment to her heart's content, to, to, to noodle around with different formations, players in different positions, fresh faces, new call-ups, um, bringing old call-ups back to the fold after years gone, all those sorts of things. And I don't see, I don't see the, the, the sort of tangible productivity that's been, that, that she's taken from that to this, to this roster. Now, it's certainly possible that someone like Morgan Bryan, um, has hit, hit, you know, returned to form at just the right time and is, is ready uh, to make a life out of me here. And I, I hope for their sake that's the case. Um, but I'm, I'm a, I, I think you'd have to be concerned that there's a little bit of a, um, a holdover sort of incumbency. And that's an issue that I think you and I have discussed this before. This is a, a sort of built-in issue with the women's national team, the nature of the culture they have, the, the nature of the contract structure. It always is right. an older team. And, and at some point that will bite them. I, I certainly hope for them yeah. not this summer, but that's lurking. And it's, I mean, there's advantages to it and disadvantages. And when you look back at how it started, you know, I know when they came up with the idea of contracts, you know, with that first CBA, I think all the way back in 2000 um, or even further, further back, um, I totally get that, that there, there, there was no league. You want these players on contract so that they've got some security. They can train more that they, you know, they don't have to be necessarily working other jobs, but it evolved into, I, I think kind of a stagnant situation of once you're on contract, it seems like uh, you, you're pretty much in until you retire. Now that that's, that's a little bit uh, over, over exaggeration because we have seen players lose their contract and we're not always privy to, to some contract movements, but it, it, it comes to the core of, of what we've seen kind of club versus country where obviously NWSL uh, take, take second to country. And it can't, to me, long-term, it can't be that extreme because like, like you're saying, it's, it's going to eventually, you know, bite them, come back to bite them when you're not constantly developing a younger pool coming up behind, behind the top players. And, and I think we'll have to see, you know, they, they, they seem to have an established, uh, chemistry uh, and understanding a lot of those women know each other really well. Uh, yes. And maybe that's all fine. But one of the, some of the people I've talked to kind of behind the scenes, insiders who are, who know some of these players who've been around the game a long time. And they were really disappointed with um, not only the nature of how Ellis handled those final few spots and, and kind of 
lead up to, to the big decisions, but also the, the type of personalities that, you know, when someone like, like McCall Zerboni is left at home, someone who's going to play probably a few minutes in all likelihood at, at the most or, or just be a locker room presence. And when you see right. players like that left off, um, again, you know, it's, it, there's no one, there's, there's not one big name or, or one, one big sort of tentpole you can, you can point to. It's just a series uh, of developments here that make me wonder if, uh, if they've gotten the balance right, both in terms of the, the, the players and then the sort of the, the chemistry and the outlook. Um, it really leaves me with questions, but again, maybe, uh, maybe it's because he had Jen on before to, to, put a, to a, put a more positive view on things. <laughs> well, and uh, there was an interview with Ali Long about getting the call and, and being named to the team. And, you know, one of the things that she mentioned was, you know, Jill knows me. I have relationships with these players. Obviously, she's seen Ali in, you know, in the Olympics in, in, in 2016. And I would think that that has to be the biggest challenge between the new, the new and the old is, yeah, you want players with experience, but how do those players get get experience? And, you know, it's still funny, you know, anytime I, I can think of a criticism of the national team, because it's still such a ridiculously deep, talented team, you know? So it's, it's not like we're talking, talking in terms of, Oh, you know, because they took, didn't take that player, they're not going to get out of the group. It's not that kind of situation. But when we know that, you know, as each cycle goes on, each tournament's more and more competitive and, you know, games can be won or lost by, you know, by a nose, every little piece counts. And, and I think one of the things that has always benefited this team is their relationships with each other and how much, even if they're not playing well, they can find a way to win. You know, so so I can I can understand that dependence on, hey, this this seems like what's best for the group. And and I'm sure any coach will tell you it's not the 23 best players. It's the 23 best players that work together. You know. Right. But, and I think that the, the, that Olympic tournament um, is, is illustrative in a lot of ways, because uh, one, you know, you, you saw that that this team. You know, all the talk about heart and fight and, and unity, that's all great. And that, that's, all, that's, again, a big part of their culture and the legacy of the 99ers. And it's now a, qu- a quarter century plus in the making, right? That idea of, uh, of the, the spirit and the fight. Um, uh-huh. that, has, that hits its limits, uh, especially when you're talking about playing quality opposition in knockout situations where your margin for error is very tight. Um, Sweden exposed, I thought, some, some really deep sort of shortcomings and gaps in – in Ellis's tactical um, outlook on things, her ability to adjust, the the way she deploys personnel, um, and it was a little bit surreal to see her um, in the, the media conference call she did after the roster announcement, casually sort of offhandedly mention you know that that, that she's kind of I, I think neglected left back um, a little bit. Uh, I was having flashbacks one to Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, one of his famous lines with anyone can play left back, which is sort of Jill's thing. And I think she referred off offhandedly to. Uh, the pot, you know, in a pinch, Tobin Heath can play fullback, and I thought, my God, does she do, like? I was instantly transported back to the to that that knockout game in the Olympics against Sweden, where, yes, the the extra time game ended with your most skillful player, Tobin Heath, playing fullback, and to me, that just really encapsulated uh, the shortcomings of that Olympic endeavor. And so to hear her drop it, it was like a Kim McCauley or somebody on Twitter said it's like she's got to be trolling us when she says stuff like that, right? This is just. It's just too rich. It's incredible to me, you know, but, but she has her, you know, she has her ideas. I think she really wants to get her best 11 players um, on the pitch at the same time. But, you know, coaches for decades over the years have, uh, and in many different situations and levels have, have found that there's limits to that, that, that you, in many cases you can't do that. Um, and I think, I think that's another one that, that's an interesting interesting one to follow as, as they set off on this adventure in France. And, and again, another comp- comparison I would make to the Olympic tournament, um, they don't have – they're not going to have time to get their feet under them. I mean, they'll have three group stage games, none of which I think will be um, – you know, they're not going to find themselves under real pressure. Sweden will be a good test, but um, they're not really going uh, to have to hit their feet in the group stage. But 
things get real pretty quick in the knockout stages, the way that this bracket is set up. And if everything goes chalk, I believe without having the, the bracket in front of me, that they're going to be playing the, the World Cup host and one of the leading contenders to, to challenge for their trophy in Paris in the quarterfinals. France-USA is an enormous match. It's worthy of a final. And, and if they're still tinkering or tweaking or not quite hitting their stride by the quarterfinals, uh, it, it's going to get really, really dodgy really quick. Definitely. And, and I also think about, and, and this is always going to be an issue, but injuries. Um, you know, we've seen many different tournaments where it's it's the choice of, well, do I take this injured player that I know better than this healthy player that maybe I don't know as well. Or, you know, I, I think back to LaRue and Morgan were both, you know, not at their best going into, into 2015. Um, but Hey, you, you had Carly and, and goals coming from other places. Um, but then I think of 2016 and the decision of, all right, you only get 18 players. Illis takes Rapino over a healthy O'Reilly uh, and then, you know, can't even start Rapino. Uh, when I think of all the players that seem just a little bit injured right now, nobody seems to have a major injury. It's not like Megan Rapino coming back from, from an ACL tear, but, uh, you know, Kelly O'Hara's ankle and this player held out and Lindsay here ran with the quad straight. Just, it makes me a little nervous. I mean, again, that's why you have 23 and, and, and I have, I, I have to keep reminding myself that you rarely use, you know, more than say, you know, 17, 18 players of your 23. Um, but it just, it, it, it does give me pause. Well, I think, I think I'll be watching the spine and the team closely. And to me, when I look at the team, the spine is, uh, it, you know, you look right up the middle, Julie Johnson, Ertz, um, Abby Dahlkemper, um, uh, whoever, whether it's, I, I think it's going to be Haran. I hope they build the midfield uh, around Haran, um, but we'll see. And then Morgan or uh, Alex Morgan up top, you know, those, then you can toss in another few names. You know, obviously they have, they have a lot of talent in wide areas too, but that spine is, is really going to be key. I think to their success, they're playing the way they want to play getting to the levels that they know they're capable of uh, quickly and consistently. Um, if, if any one of those players up the heart of the team are not fully fit or not able to go 90 minutes with regularity, this tournament is a grind. And again, that, that was a huge part of their success in Canada uh, in 2015 was that there was so much depth. They could, they could really just churn opponents uh, into dust because whether it was the 120th minute or whether it was the fifth game in, in a, what, two, three-week period, whatever that the, the physical challenge was, um, the, the fitness, athleticism, professionalism of, of both the players and all the infrastructure and support staff around them uh, allowed them to maintain a, a high level. And again, if you get, you get a knock here and there, somebody who's coming back from an injury, somebody who's just nursing something, maybe has to manage an injury, it starts to change the way your team looks and performs really quickly. Yeah. I mean, we're so deep, but if, if you've built a lot of your preparation on relationships, um, you know, that comes into play, but also when we've seen the holes this team has, you know, like left back, like you were talking about, you, (laughs) there's just, your options are, are, are really limited. Um, so there's, there's so much, there's so much to watch for in this tournament. And I, I like that, uh, it seems to be that there's a greater interest pre-tournament, uh, than perhaps we saw last time. Um, and I, and I guess I'm talking more like globally, like I, I love that um, we actually saw newspapers here cover Otta Hegerberg not being on the Norway roster. Now, granted, some of them goofed on the headline saying she was omitted or yes, she was omitted because she said she wasn't going to play. But but that it is getting coverage because it, it would be so easy for that not to get covered here because she's not an American. You know, so I, so I like that there's there's a more expansive approach to this. But but what do you well, see we, from your side? 
Well, I think there's a, a number of things that are coming together here. One, you know, we, we always talk about the World Cup bump, right? And it's it, typically it's in the NWSL or the professional league context, but but that applies across the board. There's a um, this is a high water mark of interest in in women's soccer um, on a quadrennial basis, and so you know the hope is that every high water mark is a little higher than the last one, and right. when it inevitably ebbs back towards normal, that the that the norm, the new norm, is a little bit higher, right? So that's um, I'm encouraged by what I've seen there because you have media committing real resources. We have, I don't know, I think we're up to, I can think offhand of a, a good handful of uh, of experienced, knowledgeable uh, women soccer journalists who are going to be on site uh, in, in France covering the tournament. You know, we have um, the, the fact that it's in Europe in a central location, I think always helps any tournament, men or yes. women, because yes. it, it's, it's going to draw from a huge fan base, a huge base of knowledgeable soccer fans, whether they're casual or committed to women's soccer from a, you know, in a, in a dense area, it's easy for them to get around. It's, it's easy to make a, a day trip. If you're, you know, even if you live in Germany or the Scandinavian countries or something like that. So there's a lot of sort of infrastructure advantages uh, that this tournament has. And then, and I do see that the, 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 the high points seem to be a little higher right now in terms of the commitment of broadcasters, um, the commitment of you know the French government and the French people are are really switched on right now. The the, the mainstream outlets that often will ignore the game are are paying attention. Uh, and again, the, the hope is also that that so at least some of that continues in, in a in a bigger way than before. And that reminds me um, something that doesn't really get covered, but it's it's the kind of thing that that I notice. Um, you know. Canada didn't have a lot of venues, so they were only using six stadiums. Almost everything was a double header. And 2011, the tournament before it had been the first where there wasn't a single double header, where every single game was a standalone, which meant attendance for each game was actual attendance for that game, right? Um, and so I, I'm happy that being back in France, uh, you know, being in, in a, a more reasonable size country for a tournament like this with so much travel, that all the games are standalone games. You know, nothing's, nothing's a doubleheader. And, you know, we've already seen really great ticket sales and many games sold out. So like, like you said, being in a central European country, it's like, that's huge. I also like that it means we get afternoon games here, which are, you know, wonderful uh, in summer. That's fine. It's not competing with anything else sports wise that might be going on. You know, when you think of, you know, baseball or, or something like that in the evening here. So those games can get full attention. Mm-hmm. So, so last for sure, one. and we have you know we have we have we have a fan base here that's accustomed to watching, um, you know, mid afternoon Champions League games and yeah, and watching you know uh, weekend morning games and that sort of thing. So I think that helps. The American viewing habits have shifted in, in a soccer friendly direction. So last question for you: Who do you think is is going to make the final four of the Women's World Cup? Ooh, you're putting me on the spot here. I hold am. on, hold on. I, I gotta, am. I gotta pull up my bracket. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't just shoot from the hip here, Jen. I've got it now. I've got to have everything, everything uh, in front of <laughs> me here. But I, it's I, really okay if you shoot from the hip because I don't have a bracket in front of me. But oh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna flip it even with a bracket in front of me. But I've got, you know, to have a fighting chance here. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me get my knockout stages um, set up here. So. Um, so gosh, uh, now I have to remember all the all the the B C D ones. Um Or just think about like who who do you think will end up being the best for even if the you know someone gets knocked out at court. So, I'll talk about teams I like, teams that I think are well equipped um to make to make deep runs. So I think France, um France to me are the odds on favorites. Yes, I know I think the US are probably still technically ranked number one. Um, incumbency and, and the defending champs goes a long way. I know they have um, a lot of pride and a lot of uh, determination um, to defend their trophy, but the, the, the home field advantage factor is absolutely enormous. It's been historically proven in many different settings in this game. Uh, I think I think France are going to be playing with the wind at their backs, and, and I think 
the, the knock on France for some years now, right, has been their sort of uh, their tendency to choke or freeze up in big in big settings. And I don't think they've ever we haven't really seen the best of France uh, as great of a, a women's soccer nation as it is. I think that this home, the home cooking is going to be enough to sort of get them over that psychological um, that that psychological hurdle that's always been there to trip them up in, in big games. And that's why I, I think it's I think it's going to be rough for the U.S. Uh, to play them in the quarterfinals. I think France probably wins that game. Um, again, talking today, given the game, you know, the states of the two programs and everything. So um, I see France going going far, probably winning the whole thing. Um, uh, I'm I'm hoping. Uh, well, so then other favorites like I, I think we ride Germany off at our peril. Again, they're going to have a huge fan contingent. Um, they have so much um, quality. There's so much depth. Um, how many nations in the world have more have a deeper pool to call on, right? And and we don't right. talk about it as much. But that that's there's incredible quality there, incredible again, also a culture of success, um, uh, of getting results, of getting done. So I I think a only German performance here. I'm eager to see if Australia can make the big step forward uh, this year. Uh, I, I I've been impressed by their sort of cultivation of young players for multiple cycles now, and that's part of their culture. I'm intrigued to see if they can all sort of put it together. Um, I'm also interested to see how that group C goes. They're in a group with uh, Italy, Brazil, Jamaica. Um, three of those teams, you could argue, are fairly, you know, are capable of of, um, uh, of making noise. And I, I think it sets up well for Australia to get challenged um, and then sort of maybe hit another gear if they can. So I'm, I'm watching the, uh, uh, the the Aussies as well. Um, then I think England, like Germany, things set set up well for them. Um, they've got a lot of buzz in their country. They've got a lot of excitement. Um, it helps that they had a good run in Canada. Uh, the men's team had a good run last summer. I think England are ready um, uh, to, to to cheer on that that country and and uh, and the proximity, the geographic proximity, will help a lot. And some players that have matured and and taken steps forward and are maybe ready to go and and try and put themselves in the, the real conversation of uh, of being an elite nation. The one- um, and I always love Japan. You know, Japan is in the same group with with England, um, and, and you know, there's, there's possible it's possible that Scotland could maybe throw a wrench into things there. But um, Japan is just one of my favorite programs to watch, men or women, any age level. Um, they're just such a blast. I, I really hope they can kind of summon the the levels of the past because they're they're really a joyful part of the tournament. Well, and the great thing is there's so many really strong teams this tournament contenders that you can't just say okay this team will probably win each group it's it's a whole different level of competition and i'm so looking forward to watching it and charles thank you so much for taking the time to talk u.s women's national team roster and league call-ups and and all those wonderful things that, that we love to criticize but i'm sure you're like <laughs> me, i'm sure you're like me looking forward to a really intense women's world cup yeah, let's get on the field. Enough talking, right? Let's get on the field and uh, uh, or get them on the field and 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 talk about some actual game stuff and not not just uh, roster slots 23, <laughs> 22, 23, and and so on. I think it'll be great to to get things underway and, and get the spectacle going. Time to wrap it up with the back four. We are less than a month away from the Women's World Cup. It kicks off June 7th. More and more rosters are being announced each week. So we now know England, Norway, of course, Netherlands was pretty early, and USA and a few others. So check out my Twitter feed at Keeper Notes for a list of Google Sheet links. Um, I'll have all the rosters as they're unveiled, and I'm working other working on a few other helpful Women's World Cup resources too. And the U.S. Women's Send-Off Series begins this Sunday, May 12th, versus South Africa. That game will air live on Fox beginning at 2.30 p.m. Central. And then Thursday, the 16th, they will face New Zealand. That game will be on ESPN2. And then finally, over Memorial Day weekend, they will play Mexico on ESPN before the team heads for France. And if you need some summer reading to go along with your summer Women's World Cup, got a few suggestions. Uh, 
I interviewed this author a few weeks ago. Gemma Clark has a great woman, a great book called Soccer Women. Uh, you also have the new book about the national team by Caitlin Murray. And Jeff Kasuf and Karen Tyven's book comes out next month. It's called Stories from the Women's World Cup. You can find any of those on Amazon and, and hopefully in your local bookstore. And if you didn't read it when it came out a few years ago, I highly recommend Gwendolyn Oxenham's Under the Lights and In the Dark. Several NWSL players uh, are profiled in that one. And last but not least, if you haven't checked out the t-shirts that I've designed at keepernotes.spreadshirt.com, please do. Uh, For every t-shirt sold from this site, I send $2 to the NWSL Players Association. That is the union that represents the players in NWSL who are not members of the U.S. Women's National Team. And hey, if you have a suggestion for a t-shirt design, feel free to send it to keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone for sharing the podcast with a friend or leaving a review or tweeting about it. And thanks as always to Sean for making it all happen. But now she's anybody's girl